invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19 this evening on page 14 of the Black Pew Bible as we continue our study in the life of Abraham and his pilgrimage and God's grace to him. Now, last week we saw God's judgment in the early portion of chapter 19, his judgment on Sodom for their wicked abuse of strangers. Tonight we see even more abuse, yet this time between Lot and his daughters. And so once again, God's word calls our attention to difficult things, even painful things that people do to one another that are contrary to God's will, his revealed will. For love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And yet there's a lot of unloving uh, going on in chapter 19. Sodom failed in neighbor love. Lot and his daughters do too. And uh, none of us is perfect in neighbor love either. Now, how did it manifest itself there? And how does hearing about this help us? We want to think about these things. Difficult issues tonight. Genesis 19, let me invite you to give your attention to God's word, beginning at verse 30 through 38. Hear now the word of our God. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave. With his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in, lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger son also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you knowing that your word says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness that the Man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray that you would do that work in us, even by this word. For we ask 
In Jesus' name, amen. I have not looked forward to preaching the last two weeks on account of the heavy and heartbreaking issues of Genesis chapter 19. Uh, These are difficult subjects. I was reminded by my old pastor, Ligon Duncan, however, that there's one very good reason to work consecutively through books of the Bible as we are doing. It It forces on us topics that we would never choose otherwise. And it forces the minister to learn God's truth even as he studies it. If a minister only preaches topically... He can only preach to you what he already knows, for he goes to the text with his topic in mind. But when the minister preaches through the book consecutively, he is forced to bow the knee to God's truth and grow himself, even as he prepares the messages of the scripture. And so we come upon texts that uh, we don't sometimes know what to do with, or we don't certainly want to have to preach or even read publicly in a congregation And and yet here it is. And so this is a word intended for our benefit. And so we need to hear it, though it's heavy and heartbreaking. But the more I have pondered this passage, the more I've also seen that there's help and there is hope in this passage. Let me tell you about the hope, the help. And then let me walk you through three lessons I think we learn as we look at the text itself. And then let me tell you about the hope. So the help. Three lessons and the hope. What's the help? First, this. If you carry the shame of being the initiator of sexual immorality or incest, or have felt shame through, though you were the innocent victim of another person's sinful behavior, and you did nothing wrong, but wrong was done to you the Bible says we can talk about that you are not alone and it may be hard but it doesn't have to remain hidden you know that the most natural way to discover cockroaches in a dark place is to turn on bright lights you'll see them but then the light will scatter them and the most natural way to purify a bed sheet is to hang it in the full light of a noonday blazing sun. It bleaches it clean. And you can use chemicals, of course. But sunlight will do it. And the best way to be free from the shame is to bring the secret that makes us ashamed into the light. And so remove the power it holds, which is so often the power of secrecy. For for the power of a conscience that condemns or of a devil that accuses is so often to convince us that we're the only one who has ever done something or had something done to us like this. And then that conscience or that devil says you're a freak and and you'll never be like all the other people in the world every last one of them who are quote normal though that's not your experience and people suffer in their conscience and in their heart on account of these things but the bible says 
these things do happen. And our sexuality is broken, and our instincts and desires are bent out of shape, and some of our sexual practices are evil and hurtful. For the Bible teaches, frankly, that complete chastity outside of marriage and inside of marriage, faithful devotion is the only proper use of our bodies in sexual intimacy. And so if you aren't married, abstain and be perfectly pure. And if you are married, as 1 Corinthians 7 points to, give yourself cheerfully and frequently to your spouse. But what do we do instead? We misuse sex, we misuse others, and we are misused by others. We cross lines, we withhold affection, we serve ourselves, and we suffer from others. But the Bible is saying we aren't alone in that, and the Lord sees and He knows that, and we don't have to hide that. It is, after all, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the Bible says Jesus isn't ashamed to be called our elder brother. No, he bore our shame upon the cross when he hung naked in public, crucified for our sins so that we can be forgiven and made clean and healed and made whole and made well and made happy forever in heaven. No matter what has happened in this world. So that when the Bible invites us to read about horrible things, it's warning us for sure, don't go down that road. But it's also saying sinful people, even God's people, have gone down that road, do go down that road. And yet there is a Savior for sinners. And so while we might otherwise wish to avoid reading or hearing things like this, it's helpful to have it in the Bible. For God to help us think about these things, even to talk about things. And parents, if you're cringing, just consider that our little ones are going to hear about these things. They are going to learn about all the things of Genesis 19. So often in our day, they're hearing and being taught about them by so many at such a young age. Isn't it better if they hear from God something about these things, that his word has something to say, that the church is a safe place to talk about it. And so this is helpful. Now there are three lessons, I think, to be learned from this passage, many other things, of course, but I want to highlight three. There's a, three warnings. There's a warning about the, the gravitational pull of sin. I'll tell you what I mean by that in a moment. There's a warning here about gateway sins and there's a warning here about generational sins i'll tell you what i mean by those things in the first place there is a warning here about what i'm calling the gravitational pull of sin notice where the story where we pick up the story begins verse 30 now lot went up out of zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters for he was afraid to live in zoar so he lived in a cave with his two daughters Now what I want you to do is reflect on the direction of his life and the dispositions of his heart. When we first encountered Lot, 
Where was he? He was with Abraham and Ur in Mesopotamia. And he came to the promised land with his uncle Abraham. Shortly thereafter, he became wealthy, as did Abraham, yet with lots of sheep and lots of shepherds working on his behalf. There was conflict between Abraham's shepherds. And so uh, Abraham said, let there not be conflict between us. You go one way and I'll go the, the other. You pick one place and I'll turn to the other. And so we learn that Lot moved his business to the Jordan Valley, which was lush, it was green, it was well watered. The Bible even says it was like the Garden of Eden in that way. Beautiful place. And in 1312, chapter 1312, we learned that he pitched his tent near Sodom. Though, verse 13, they were wicked, doing great evil against the Lord. And that portended the future unfolding of this disaster. And by 19, chapter 1, last week we saw at the beginning of 19, that he's not in a tent living outside Sodom. Now where is he? He's in the city gate and he has a home inside the city. He has gotten very comfortable there. And his daughters are betrothed to men of Sodom. And he knows full well how these wicked people, as he described them, greeted visitors to their community. Yet there he is, there he remains, flirting with disaster, seeing how he how close he can come, as it were, to, to the flame without being burned by it. And then the angels that have come, the two men, they warn him that Sodom is in imminent danger of judgment from God, and he has got to flee. He's got to take his wife and his daughters and his sons if he has them, and his sons-in-law who are betrothed to be married to his sons, and they should get out of the city, and they should go to the mountains and flee. They should be rescued. And it was a very gracious thing to do, because why, verse 16, the Lord was merciful to him. And though the angels warned him, he lingered, the Bible says. We looked at that. And so they actually had to take him by the hand and practically sort of drag him out of the city. But we learned that he wouldn't go to the mountains where they told him to go. And in 19 and 20, if you go back, he asked for permission to go to Zoar, this little town, which we read about at verse 30. He asked for permission, and they gave it to him. They condescended to answer his request, and Zoar was spared from the judgment of the other communities in the area because Lot was going to be there, and the God was going to spare them on account of him. And now here he is in verse 30, what? Afraid to live in Zoar. So he goes to the hills to live in a cave. So fear is driving so much of his life. He fears to go to the mountains first. Let me go to the city. He gets to the city where he's told he'll be safe and he fears to live there. So he goes to the mountains, even though God had promised him you'll be safe in the city. Now, what was he afraid of? Well, it doesn't say. Perhaps he feared the retribution by the locals for, after all, his God had judged their neighbors. Perhaps he, not believing the Lord that he would be safe in Zoar, perhaps he feared that the Lord was going to come again in another kind of judgment at Zoar like at Sodom. I don't know what he feared exactly. But in either case, notice the direction of his life. Over the course of time, he has drifted further and further away from Abraham. 
and from the Lord and from his promises. And he has drifted more and more into sin. He's lost his moral backbone. He mistreats his daughter. He offered them, remember, to the crowd. He gets drunk here. And notice the disposition of his heart. He isn't trusting. He's fearful. Fearful. He resists the Lord's instructions to flee Sodom. He doesn't rest in the Lord's promise that he'll be safe in Zoar. So, in the beginning, the cushiness of life seems more important to him than the kingdom of God. And in the end, a cave seems safer to him than the city the angel said he would be safe in. There is this gravitational tug pulling hard at him. The the tug of sin. And therefore, this is a cautionary tale for us. You ever, uh, I don't know if you like to read these, uh, these motivational posters that are out there, or motivational memes. There are, you know, I can't even think of one, but they're, they're trying to, they show you a picture of something and they're trying to say, this could be yours if you just really work hard. But, but, but the, the demotivational uh, ones are fascinating to me. There's one of, of a picture of a, dry, a giant cruise ship. It appears to be something like the Titanic. And it's, it's going down. And at the top of the poster it says, mistakes. And at the bottom it says, it could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny when you read it. And then the more you think about it, of course, in light of Lot not so funny after all it's cautionary tale the power of sin is always pulling at everyone including the people of God and giving into sin is always easier than resisting sin and have you have you experienced this as a Christian that it's easier not to read the Bible than it is to read the Bible. Easier to daydream in worship than to give your attention to God. Easier to wish for things than to actually pray and ask for things. Easier to indulge yourself than to say no to yourself. Because there's a gravitational pull of sin always trying to capture us and captivate us. The last time we see Lot in the Old Testament is right here in a cave fathering the enemies of Israel. And if not for 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 7 and 8, I think most of us would have very little hope for Lot at all. We need to see that this world is a danger to us and our continuing sinful hearts are a danger to us let alone that there's an enemy of our soul who is a danger to us. And if we don't recognize those dangers, and if we don't sense the allure of sin and the ways the world is trying to squeeze us into its mold, then just maybe we're a lot more like Lot than we are Abraham. So be warned. Now the second thing you see here, there's a warning here, I think about gateway sins. Gateway sins, what do I mean? Sins that lead to more sins. Sins that open a door to even worse sins. Lot here was unafraid when he ought to have been afraid. And then he was afraid when he ought to have been unafraid. You remember this. 
He was unafraid of sin in Sodom, happy to dwell there, dwell there, lacked no fear to immerse his family and his daughters in the life of the community. And then uh, that lack of fear opened a door to his sin against his daughters when he offered them to the crowd. And now here he is in Zoar, where the angel said he was safe, and yet he's afraid. And that fear led to isolating his daughters in a cave and to their sin against one another. And in both these cases, the latter sins are worse than the former sins. The later sins are worse than the beginning of the sins. That's what I mean by gateway sins. The first sins opened wide a gate through which he walked. So what you have in this passage then is, as the story unfolds, his daughters living in a cave with him, isolated from people. And as marriages in that day were arranged, and Lot is hiding out and away in fear, they fear they won't be able to have children. They, they fear that they won't be able to have a spouse by whom they can have Children. Now, why Lot didn't seek husbands for them among Abraham's household? Granted, Abraham didn't have his own children yet. Isaac's not born yet. But he had a large and extended family. We don't know why he didn't do that. His daughter's desire for children is understandable. Their plan to get them is reprehensible. Verse 31, the older tells the younger, let's make our father drink wine. Let's get him drunk. Lot gets drunk, and what happens? Well, what happens to him is what happened to Noah. You remember the story of Noah? Noah before him, who was graciously and dramatically rescued by God from the judgment of God that rained out of heaven, literally in rain. And yet after that event, what did he do? He planted a vineyard, he drank the wine, he got drunk, and he was abused by a son. And now Lot... Likewise, graciously and dramatically rescued by God from the judgment of God that rains down, literally the same word, yet this time it's fire and brimstone, out of heaven. And after the rescue, what does he do? He drinks wine and he is abused by his daughters. It's amazing. Now it's true that those who are graced by God and rescued dramatically, not a one of us is made perfect until glory. And that's not an excuse for what he did, but it is a caution about it. So Lot gets drunk. And how many times does he get drunk? He gets drunk two nights in a row. Verse 34, the next day after the firstborn uh, did what she did, the next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay with him last night. Let's get him drunk again and then you go do it. So drunk is Lot that he doesn't know what his daughters have done to him. He doesn't realize when they came in and when they left. So drunk he doesn't remember the night before take precautions against it happening again. So drunk the first night and so not realizing he gets drunk the second night. And twice in a row it happens. And both daughters, verse 36, get pregnant by the father. That's the plot line of the story. Consider the working of sin in this. If Lot's motive here was to avoid the people of Zoar, 
because he realized they were just like Sodom and he finally realized that God was serious about judgment and sin was really evil, then, then he's in a, in a cave perhaps to avoid those sinners. Which then is a reminder to us that you can't escape sin by escaping from other sinners. <laughs> you bring sin with you wherever you go. Lot isn't safe from sin living in Sodom or not living in Sodom. Lot isn't safe from sin living in a cave with only his family. It says the early church father, Jerome, who was one of the desert fathers for a time, he went into the desert thinking to escape the lust of the world, saying, quote, when I was living in the desert in that vast solitude with scorpions and wild beasts as my only companions, I was often surrounded by troops of dancing girls. My mind was burning with desire and the fires of lust bubbled up. He couldn't escape himself and the lust of his own heart in a desert all alone. Lot can't do that either in a cave. So Lot finds himself free of the abuse of Sodom, but now by his own drunkenness, he finds himself a slave to the abuse of his daughters and the responsibility, I'm not laying it all on them. His fear led to isolation. Isolation led to his daughter's fears. They had to plan to get pregnant. That led to his drunkenness. His drunkenness opened the door for sexual immorality, even incest. It's a gateway sin. Getting drunk was a gateway into much worse evil. Fearing and not living by faith was a gateway sin into much worse evil. And no, I am not saying that that anybody deserves for getting drunk what happened to him. People who get drunk don't have it coming to them. But at the same time, we can't say it is foolish and dangerous in certain contexts to get drunk. Because one sin can open a door to other sins. Gateway sin. Now the last thing you see here is a warning about generational patterns of sin. Sin, as you know, can be learned by example. It doesn't have to be. I mean, after all, you don't have to teach an infant to grab things they've been told not to. And you don't have to teach a young toddler to lie. They'll just straight up tell you they didn't eat the chocolate cookie with the chocolate all over their face. They didn't need to have that model, right? But sin can be modeled, and you can learn to sin by watching or being encouraged by others in their sinning. In Sodom, we learned in the last chapter that all the men of Sodom, from every place in the city, men old and men young, all gathered around his house seeking the gang rape of the visitors in his home, which shows you that that kind of behavior can be learned. You can be recruited into that kind of a lifestyle. There were no exceptions among them. That doesn't happen without the example, without the encouragement, and without the recruitment. And we've got to recognize that in our day, we are being recruited, and our families and our kids are being recruited like 
lazy to embrace or to accept, to approve, to try all manner of lifestyles that God forbids. So you can teach sinners the way of sinning. Now ask yourself, why did his daughters do what they did? Well, are we that surprised that his daughters did what they did? That their thought was, I'll take what I can get. I mean, after all, where did they learn to take what wasn't willingly given or rightfully theirs, if not in Sodom, in their father's house, where the people treated sex cheaply and people cheaper, and in Sodom where Lot betrothed his daughters to bisexual men of Sodom who were at that door seeking that presence of those visitors, and where Lot offered his own daughters to that crowd to spare and protect his visitors. Where did they learn that that they were so cheap and that intimate expressions were so cheap? They learned it from their father and in their community. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, says John Curran. You can take the daughters out of Sodom, but you can't take Sodom out of the daughters. And the irony as it happens is that he offered his daughters to be known by gang rapists and now he doesn't even know that his own daughters did similar things with him and though that is not the main point of the text here it does remind us that these issues are important in rearing our children. J.J. Davison's commentary says this, the story of Lot and his family should provide a sobering reminder that all of our decisions are significant even That of where we live and our moral environment significantly influences our lives. And for this and for many other reasons, the New Testament constantly implores the believer to fellowship with those of like precious faith. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not an argument for not loving our neighbor. But the Bible says be in the world and not of it. And so as we raise our children, may we aim to to do likewise. Now these girls were immersed in Sodom, and it shows. Notice their two sons, verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, that's verse 37. Now his name means from the father. Literally has the name imprinted on him. He is the father then of the Moabites. And verse 38, the younger son also bore a, or the younger daughter also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami. His name means his name means son of my kinsman or son of my male close uh, uh, close male relative. Here, he's the father of the Ammonites. And what do we know of the Moabites? And what do we know of the Ammonites? Just that they became two of the nations who were regularly at war with Israel, two nations that were rejected by God. Not because of their lineage, not because of their parentage, but because of their mistreatment of Israel. So Lot mistreated his daughters, his daughters mistreated him, the kids grew up to mistreat Israel. Generational patterns of sin. I'm not saying it's in the DNA, or that it's inevitable or inescapable that the children should follow in the way of the parents, but by example... By the words that we say, by the way that we treat one another, we can cheapen life and our kids will grow up and treat others cheaply. One of these families, the Moabites, they were involved in fertility cults. 
and orgies who would one day lead the people of Israel to imitate their practices. The other, the Ammonites, was a, was a race of people which worshipped the god Molech in a religion which, among other things, encouraged child sacrifice. Moloch was a false god who was worshipped by an idol made of brass, a hollow metal brass figure, hands outstretched, and a fire would be kindled in the lower part of that idol, and then people would bring their infant children and lay them on the hot hands while the priests beat drums to cover the cries of agony. And you say, how cruel? How could anybody do such a thing? Well, we might say, is it surprising that a man who offered his daughters to be gang raped by homosexuals in exchange for favors to his house guests had descendants who sacrificed their children on an altar of fire to appease the god of Molech and gain his favor? Generational patterns of sin by watching, observing, and being mistreated. And if you look at Lot's situation and you are appalled by it and what came of it, guess what you ought to be? You ought to be appalled by this. You're supposed to be. Here's a man who's a living illustration of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as speaking of believers who in the end, quote, will be saved but only as through fire. If you ever wonder what those words mean, look no farther than law. Who the Peter tells us was a righteous man and saved. Yet all this. So there are generational patterns of sin here. Let's, now let's conclude by looking at, at hope. If we saw that there was help, what's the hope here? Well, the hope, I think, is at least hinted at this in, this in this way. When Abraham looks for a bride for Isaac, he sends for a bride all the way back to Mesopotamia. He avoids the children of Lot. For their evil, he will not have them become part of his family. Yet when God created the ancestral family of his son, Jesus... That ancestral family from which would come the Messiah. Whom did he choose? He didn't go all the way to Mesopotamia only. He went to Lot's family. He chose a daughter of Moab. Ruth. The Moabite. To marry Boaz the Jew. Who became the grandmother of King David. From whom the greater King Jesus descended. That's grace. It's incredible. He's not ashamed. To be identified with this wicked family and to show mercy to the descendants of Lot. God brings good out of evil. God is gracious. That is our hope. And I close with a couple points of application. Very direct. Maybe you have touched a relative you ought not to have touched. And the devil has been blackmailing you, shaming you, telling you that God hates you, that God can never and will never forgive you. 
And so there is no hope for you. Maybe your conscience accuses you and says just that. Now it is true that this is a serious sin. And it is also true that Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. But there is hope. Like the prodigal son, if you realize you are living in the squalor and filth of the muck of, of a life that said no to the Father, squandered all that He promised it, and if you will come to your senses, and if you will acknowledge your sin, and if you will go to the Father, you will find that the Father will run to you with open arms. He is willing to have you. That's good news. Some of you may be married to or thinking of marrying one who has messed up this way or one who feels marred from something like this. Grace doesn't mean you have to fear. Sometimes it's just those failures and those hurts that makes redeeming grace and restoring grace and everlasting grace precious. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you spared not your own son, but gave him up for us all. And whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, thank you that you are a physician and a healer of our hurts. Pray that you would minister your grace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we prepare to come to this table. Let's stand and sing.